Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Brian Lever. Brian is a baloney amputee, uh, competes for in biathlon, is a biathlon athlete for the AFPST and GB development team, as well as being a sprint kayaker, kayaker for Way Kayaking, Kayaking Club in Guildford. So welcome on to the show, Brian. Thank you for having me. So beyond the inter- initial introduction that I've given you, Brian, obviously some people might be interested to know what is the AFPST team? Uh, AFPST team is the Armed Forces Para Snow Sports team. Uh, set up a few years ago um, by an amazing lady called Elizabeth, who she was a major in the British Army and recently retired hugely into her snow sports herself, Nordic snow sports. Um, she basically saw a gap in the market, but not really in the market, but in the rehabilitation of soldiers serving um, to get them into winter snow sports. And they started, when she first started the team, there was maybe two alpine skiers. And then she built on it and introduced the Nordic side and then the snowboard side. And now the AFPST is practically the UK development squad. Uh, All the athletes that now compete for GB at the elite level of para snow sport, practically all of them have come through the AFPST program. Um, And then you've got one or two that haven't. Um, And then we, we now train alongside the actual GB Nordic team and then you've got a they, they're split into two paths so you've got the AFPST guys who turn up they train they go on the training camps but they're not classifiable so they do a lot of competitions against able-bodied athletes so these people suffer from the likes of post-traumatic stress or non-classifiable disabilities so they'll do the likes of the army championships and the commonwealth championships those sort of things where it's as able-bodied as you can make it really. Um, And then you've got another group of us that are really, really um, into the idea of racing. And we have gone off and we go on the training camps and work alongside the main GB performance team. Uh, Still under the AFPST banner, we're all coached by them and we represent them with everything we do. Um, Because if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be doing it. And then, we we're basically trying to chase for those spots that come available in the main program um so we race at the development rate competitions uh, any of the big events that the main squad can't go to because there's a calendar clash we step in and fill gaps there if there's an injury in the main ca- uh, team we fill the fill the gaps there um all with the intent of becoming 
main roster of the main t- GB squad. So it's just basically a feeder program, but it's set up. It's all a charity. Um, anybody that's had a service number from cadet instructor up to, you know, your high ranking military officers can all get involved um, either as a coach or as an athlete, or even if you just want to give it a try and go skiing once or twice a year, you can get involved. And it's, it's great for rehabilitation, both physical and psychological. It's a great atmosphere, but because everyone's come from a military background, everyone's got the works uh, the same work ethic. Um, so when you throw 10, 15 people in a house, everyone get instantly clicks and get along. The banter's amazing. The work ethic's amazing. Uh, if you'll get, you know, the coaches are very military orientated in the fact that we're going to go for a short ski on nice flat ground and it'll be a 20 kilometer ski on mostly 25% inclines. Uh, but everyone helps everyone get to the finish line. Um, so there's no weakness. You go, you know, it's, it's, it's great. It really does bring people out of their shells. And were you, were you, uh, active forces yourself or you cadet? Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was basically a full-time reserve, uh, for the British army did five years based out of Grantham. Um, so I did all that. Nothing really had quite a boring military career. I was royally just six core. Um, and then I left, I actually lost my leg after leaving the military. Um, and then I got into skiing through kayaking. How, how did you be, acquire your amputation? Um, I was born with bilateral club feet and then I had a couple of hundred hours worth of reconstructive surgery across both legs uh, up at Stanmore Orthopaedics Hospital and um, they ended up replacing my tibula, fibula and ankle joint with metalwork and then all was dandy. Uh, My last operation was when I was 14, got discharged, got my fitness up, joined the army um, one thing led to the another and I realized that I couldn't be regular army because of the fact they found out I had club feet and I wasn't hundred percent honest about it when I first joined. Uh, but they gave me the option to be a full-time reservist because I already had the skill set that they were after. Um, so I agreed to basically join the RLC and do the job that they wanted me to do. Did that had, you know, my, my job in the army was to basically be a really fancy chef for high ranking officers um but because i'd already trained as a chef for tony tobin and went to westminster kingsway college i had a great education in hospitality so they were willing to look past the minor medical defect as long as i didn't take an infantry role um so i did that for five years loved it uh left for what i thought at the time was greener pastures and then my body decided to reject the network really randomly after it had been in for 10 years. And it caused a severe amount of nerve damage and wastage of soft tissue. Um, so I was given a couple of options to reconstruct the leg, but all of them led to amputation down the line or have the amputation when I was younger and more able to deal with it. Um, so I elected to have it amputated at a younger age instead of having it going through months and months of surgery and rehab only to have it amputated another 10 years down the line. Um, so yeah, it was, that's how I ended up becoming a bit one-sided. So from a mindset perspective now, Brian, what, 
what was that like? Or did, did having some of that skill sets, the military instilled in, into you help? Um, yeah, I think coming from that sort of background, being told that you're going to lose a limb, it was, it was easier to, two reasons. I found it, it was daunting, but I found it copable. I was able to cope with it. Um, because I could plan what I was going to do. I, I planned it down to the, the minute. I knew exactly what day, at what time I was going to go into the operating theatre, who was going to be my surgeon. I had planned my rehab. I had time to get as physically and psychologically healthy as possible before I went in. So I knew my body, mentally and physically, I was in the best shape I could be in to deal with it. Um, and it gave me a chance to kind of square away all the admin around it with work and the house and basically brief my family on what was happening. So there was no real trauma for me. So I, I see myself as extremely fortunate. Um, so I was just basically, I did, you know, everything that I thought, I did a checklist. I literally wrote a checklist of everything I had to do. So I came out the other side of it in the best shape I I could. And I worked through that checklist, um, which made me, made me extremely fortunate. Um, So that's why when I talk to some people, I say, well, I find being an amputee really easy, but that's because it was planned for me. People that have had accidents, you know, some of my old colleagues who have become amputees on, you know, through their job it's not so easy for them because one minute they've got two legs next minute they wake up two weeks later and they've only got one leg. They can't plan any of it. So I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to become an amputee on my terms. Um, it still, you know, it still wasn't the easiest thing in the world and I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, but I had the best chance to do it my way. Um, and I was very fortunate that the team I had doing the amputation, doing the rehab, you couldn't get much better than the people that looked after me. Um, again, through mili- all, all got through military and sports contra- uh, contacts. So I was very fortunate. You said earlier in the episode, Brian, that obviously you, you found Nordic skiing because of the kayaking. How did you yes. kind of get into kayaking then? Um, towards the basic, I did it like most, most, uh, kind of people that get, have a disability, you, you attend a dis- disabled work sports workshop. Um, I, I had a quite decent pattern non para, so able-bodied sporting career. Um, but I kept after losing the leg, I kept getting a lot of injuries to my residual limb. So I thought, well, I kept getting invited to these limb power sports trial days. And I thought, do you know what? I'm event- I'm just going to give in and go go to one. Um, and lo and behold, there was British canoe in there, jumped on an ergo. They were like, you're short, you're fat. Come, come kayak, give it a couple of months, come back up to us, see if you get classified, see if you can do it. Um, so I did. I, I joined Guildford. Um, did it as a little bit of a hobby to start off with. I, I kept up my able-bodied sport and then 
three years ago, I got given an ultimatum by my surgeon saying, if you keep hurting your residual limb, we're going to have to amputate more of it. So I gave up non-para sport, jumped headfirst into kayaking, um, really started kind of grinding it out on trainings at six o'clock every morning, just to fill a void, I think. Um, it was great because my wife could come and be on the river when we'd go to tournaments up in Nottingham. She could be there. It was it was really kind of, she could get involved with it. Um, and then they started introducing um, ski ergs for cardio, I think, year and a half ago as a low kind of low impact form of cardio. And um, I thought, oh, this is pretty decent. So one, you know, my, my times got registered. Someone saw my time somewhere. And I next thing you know, I got a phone call saying, would you like to give snow a go? And um, I went, I'm a kayaker. And they went, yeah, but kayakers make good sit skiers. And I was like, if you say so. Um, and I went along for a trial week um loved it it was great fun um hot hard work like you're hurting muscles you've never hurt before um and i raced at the end of that trial week at the amateur division of the world championships did a time trial there had a good result went away had another phone call saying we'd like you to come back um spoke to my team of coaches spoke to friends family because it involved a lot of time away from home away from work and my family um, and made the gamble to do it um, and see how everything kind of works side by side. And yeah, I haven't really looked back on it. It's still early days. Um, I think I've been skiing for about a season now. I've raced six events. Um, so yeah, it's, it's still early days. I'm still spending a lot of time eating snow I, I crash at least one one rate every time. Um, yeah, it's it's good fun. It's really good fun. Do you think, Brian, that uh, and it's probably one for the amputees that listen to this episode. Do you think this either sport and probably both of them in, in, in sync uh, to hear you speak? Do you think it gives you a sense of escapism in terms of you can focus solely on be it out on the snow or being out on the river it means you can kind of let all your problems subside and you just focus on that moment moment in time yeah it, it does put you in a proper bubble um you'll know yourself when you're at training there's nothing outside of training uh when when you're there be it on the snow or on the river like you said it's that is your world. It's like a world inside a world. Um, You're surrounded by people that have got the same mindset as you. No one cares that you're a power athlete. You're training alongside able-bodied athletes. No one cares whether you're a barrister or you clean streets for a living. You, you're all there for the same reason. You're all treated the same. Um, And you're, it can, it doesn't matter if you train for 15 minutes or four hours a day, you are, there's nothing going to bother you or get you down for that period of time. It could be a completely horrible training session, but you are just living in the moment. There's no outside worries. Um, and I, I think it's, it's great because you can have a terrible day at work, a terrible night 
sort of sleep the night before because you know for example if my son's not sleeping but I still get up at 5am drive the 45 minutes to training because once I'm there and I'm out the car that's me I'm in my own world for that period that length of time and then the moment I get back in my car and I turn my phone back on I'm then back in my other world where I've got bosses and directors to keep happy and a family to look after which you know I'm I'm happy I'm blessed to be in that situation but I just me a turn off switch so how difficult was it because obviously we discussed off air before coming on to record that obviously you as a club at Guildford have only gone back to training uh, as of Monday what was it like for the other two and a half months not being able to um, train per se with another individual um it, it was challenging um i was very fortunate during the lockdown that due to my career i was very busy um but training became quite challenging uh it was too it became noticeably easy just to say do you know what i'll take today off and then I believe we had quite an in-depth conversation where it was like, actually, that's the wrong mindset to be having. Um, and I started to really focus on, with a pen and paper, write down that tomorrow I'm going to do these activities. I'm going to go to work, I'm going to come home, put the little into bed, and I'm going to smash out a two-hour two training session that does X, Y, and Z. And once I started implementing that format, I started to get the enthusiasm back behind training and I started enjoying it. And then I started adding the little extras onto training that weren't on the spreadsheet. So I would do the core session, which was planned, but I might go for a 10 minute run beforehand and I might throw some chin ups in at the end of it. And all all the, you know, all these little things like yesterday I had, what was it? uh, 10 times 200 meter hill climbs in my ski rig. That was all that was on my plan. And then I did that. And at the end of it, I was like, I still feel pretty fresh. It, you know, I could feel that I was training, but I was like, the sun's out. It's still quite early. I'm going to go on a 5K steady pace and just do 5Ks of stretching out. And then I got home and I was like, oh, I might do a bit of actual proper stretching. And, you know, it, it just snowballs and you feel good about it. Um, now that I'm back at training, it's great because you've got the encouragement of the coach and the people you train with. But it also, I, I think I'm now in that position where I don't need that encouragement from them. I, I've got myself tuned where I can just go, right, I'm doing it because one, I enjoy it, and two, I know it needs to be done. Um, I'm not using the kind of lockdown as an excuse not to train anymore, um, which meant my diet's falling back in line, uh, my mentality's falling back in line, you know, my, my tr- nutrition went completely off board. Um, but that's, back in place the weight's starting to drop off again uh, it's it's yeah it's it's good and you said there brian obviously that's your words not mine um be the conversation we had probably about a month ago i uh, would you doing some helping out some market research uh i obviously put elements of i won't say doubt but questions into your mind that probably made you kind of think internally well am i doing what a, a, in a sense 
going to, to my core beliefs and probably ultimately you, you probably thought to yourself when you wrote it down no obviously i'm going against mm. everything what i stand for so i need to do something about it versus you saying it was me that put that into the the fear of doubt into i probably got you to probably question certain things that you were doing yeah i think you the core beliefs are always there you you don't kind of get to a decent level in sport or a career. And that's what, if you don't have those set core beliefs. Um, but I think I got caught up in the whole ethos of everyone just kind of chilling and lighting the barbecue in the evenings and stuff like that. It became too comfortable. And I'd forgotten that I like living in the uncomfortable. I like going out and doing the miles and polite, putting the hours in. Um, and I, just saying it out loud I started I think that's all it took was just saying it to someone else that I I heard myself speak and I went really mate you know pull your head out get back to it this isn't you and you know the next day I I, I went for the first run in I don't know a year simply because it was the only activity I could do my rig had four flat tires I was waiting for Amazon to deliver new tires to me so I was just like, well, all I can do is run. It's going to be a slow run, and it's, I'm not going to cover much distance, but I'm going to run. And I went out and I ran. And then I've just built on it. You know, some days I can't train because of work or family. So the days I can do, I make up for the days that I didn't. Um, and it just took a little bit of sitting down and planning what I'm going to do around my timetable. And I realized I can still live in my bubble of training when the rest of the world is sitting around doing nothing. I don't need a coach there to be kind of whipping it, going, do this, do this, do this. I can, you know, 30 years old, I should, should know how to train by myself by now. Um, and I think it was like, you know, just talking to you made it clear that I was just being lazy for the sake of being lazy. Um, so I just kind of went back to being what I was before the lockdown and put some more effort into it. Oh, ultimately call it laziness. I would call it um, people are utilizing certain coping mechanisms. It might be, you talked about comfort zone. It's probably for people to go into their gardens and, and be, I'm assuming it's sunny outside where you are in the UK. We've been on the same island together. <laughs> it is an excuse to go out and have a barbecue. And you've probably seen, mm-hmm. uh, I've seen one, one chap who's in, in the group you and I are, uh, that I run, uh, is I think he's had, if not two, if not three barbecues in the time that I've, short pace that I've known him. And he's kind of, of will whack up the boom box. If it, if it disturbs a neighbor, oh well, but obviously he gets satisfaction out of the music that's playing. He's can happy and content because he's in a sense of comfort. And also that's an element of control. And I think when you mentioned laziness, you probably disagree with that a little bit. Obviously it's not within the scale of the things you are in control of your actions mm. of doing that however it is lazy versus a perspective of where you were before so it's not mm. laziness it's maybe a little bit you've taken the foot off the gas and you yeah, and I both, yeah you and i both know that 
I think you mentioned even on with the virtual call that I run on a Saturday that you said it's difficult to be able to take that step back and have that rest. So you yeah. saying it laziness, it's maybe reframing it from a positive as well, okay, maybe I needed to, that element of rest. I'm not saying the not the 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 time frame was maybe maybe it got from a rest period to now. Yeah, I think okay, it went I'm from a rest period now. to kind of a um I'm just chilling. Um, one, you know, taking a couple of days here and there is always good for the soul. Um, but I think those one or two days snowballed into a week that snowballed into a fortnight and I became comfortable not doing it. Um, and then I, you know, just, I needed to get back to it. Um, because I, I, it's a bit odd, but I think training kind of completes me as a person makes me, it makes me more of a happier person to be around. Um, I get. I noticed years ago when I was doing able-bodied sport because I'd train three hours a night, five days a week for the team that I trained with. And any of us that weren't training, we'd become really miserable really quickly um, to the stage where even if you were injured, you'd turn up and you'd sit and you'd watch those that were training simply so you were in that little bubble, that little environment of, I can't actually physically do it, but I can watch others do it. I'll still learn a little bit from it, maybe technique wise. Um, but you know, you couldn't just sit at home and turn, separate your worlds. You still had to be there. Um, so even, you know, for the six weeks after I had my leg off, I was still sat there a couple of nights a week watching everyone. It kind of helped that my wife trained at the same gym. So, um, I was going when she went, but it, yeah, it's, it, I, I've become quite tetchy when I haven't trained for a while. Um, there's something about training that just makes me a happier person. Do you think it makes you put on a little bit more of an even keel than us and it's uh, a yeah. balance of emotions? Because mm. obviously the Definitely. athletes listening to this can resonate with it as maybe from uh, some people probably can relate to it because obviously you go into a negative emotional state to be able to get the best out of you in a physical sense. Whereas anything else within your plethora of day to day life, you would want to do the opposite. So I think it, 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 I don't know for whatever reason you go to the, the dark, dark side for sport, but I guess you use different um, emotions to compel you to be a obviously a better version of yourself because mm-hmm. ultimately we we talk about competitiveness uh selfishness egotism obviously they're all very about the self but that's not a, always a bad thing because obviously that's at a kind of a positive to you towards you because obviously you're exercising you're getting stronger you're getting fitter Yes, you're not. It's not the be- the beneficial to anybody else. Obviously, from the outside perspective, it, it is because that's if you're a better person to be around. That helps your wife, it helps your son, mm. that helps your colleagues, uh, and I think it has a knock on effect when people look at it from that perspective. But it's just starting. I think where people get unstuck with this is they see as exercise as a chore or nutrition as a is um what would I call it, uh, an ankle weight around you. It's like, well, it's not really, and this is probably what no. you, you echo, echo the sentiment. 
it's finding what's going to make you happy about the physical exertion. I won't call it exercise or I won't call it uh, training. And same, same with, okay, we call it nutrition as coaches, athletes, whereas the regular Joe in the street will call it a diet. Well, technically they want in the definition from the dictionary, they want into the same. Yeah. It's just been hijacked uh, to sell products. Whereas, yeah, they, they want to know the ins and outs of what's the pros and cons of a certain diet. Whereas even I had clients say to me, well, what do you eat? Well, mine is so, so flexible in terms of even without lockdown, it's going to equate for, like you said, training, not training. Um, obviously, allow myself to have the occasional treat. I don't feel guilty about having a cake. Um, that was one of the kind of the positives to having a birthday in lockdown. It's like, well, what can I do that's necessarily different than every year round? Well, I don't normally have cake. That's mm. the only... I won't call it positive, but the only outside stimulus that I can create because I can't have friends, I can't have family, um, I can't have sport. What's going to give me a momentary uh, dopamine hit, which is a sense of that what it is? Okay, cake. Enjoy yeah, that. I had what exactly the same. I had my thirtieth in lockdown, and um, yeah, I, you know, I. I, I indulged a fair bit um you know i had the most amazing cheesecake ever and then i did have a a good friend of mine shipped me a um crate of ciders that we normally go to an agricultural show every year as a as a community little kind of village community but we couldn't go this year so um there's a microbrewery that sells proper dry cider and he went he phoned her up and got quite a fair bit of it sent to our houses so um we had a a tipple or two and i didn't feel guilty about it because it's not something i do every day um it's i do it in measure so i know that i had a few you know over that week period you know i i had a few drinks i ate practically a slice of cheesecake every night just to get rid of it but i know that the following week I'm I'm back to eating clean, so I didn't feel guilty about it. It's someone said the other day on the chat that you're having. It's you know they're cutting down how much they drink. They cut. It's not. It's the small steps that make the big difference. People that go, oh, you know, I've seen this on social media. I want to do this diet. It's such a radical change straight away that you're never going to stick to it. Um. It's all about making smaller, positive life changes that will make the results more easier to achieve. So someone said the other day that, you know, they if they grab a burger, they now share half of it with their wife instead of having a burger each. Well, great. Well done. You know, my, me and my wife are exactly the same. Once in a while, we'll order a pizza. We'll have half a pizza each, but we won't have a pizza ourselves. Um, you know, it's it's about making the small differences. Don't you can go to a pub and you can socialise without drinking alcohol. And if you are going to drink alcohol, what's a, what's an alcohol that you like that's low in calories? You're still getting the feeling of being involved with your friends and drinking, 
just without the 200 calories a pint kind of deficit. Um, and then you posted up something the other day about living in a calorie deficit isn't as drastic as people make it out to be if you make those small changes. And those small changes will make a big difference on the scales. But I always try and tell people that talk to me about weight and stuff because I'm on, on from the outside looking in my nutrition looks decent but i know from a professional stance it's pretty bad um but i was having this conversation the other day with i don't focus on the scales i focus on my appearance and my performance because i went to the doctors the other day for a general mot and i got called medically obese by this doctor and i was just like seriously she was like your bmi is off you know your bmi is up there your height to weight ratio and I went, and I was like, I'm not going to be in your bracket. She wanted me to drop like 10 kilos. And I went, okay, yeah, I've got a little bit of extra timber I could chisel away and I'm working on it, but it's still not going to be 10 kilos. And I'm back to full-time training. I'm going to only put weight on. Um, this time last year, I looked like an upside down Dorito. And I was like, you called me fat then. You called me medically obese then. Now you're just calling me obese. I was just like, you've got to understand it's not always about what the scale says. I, I know people that are Olympic medalists who are technically classed as medically obese, but they have a 1% body fat index. And you can't fixate on what the scales say. If you're happy at the size you are and you're healthy at the size you are, then be the size you are as long as it is healthy. Just because someone goes, oh, you know, you weigh 80 kilos, that's that's fat. No, I weigh 80 kilos because my sport requires me to be the size I am. Um, you can't label everyone with the same kind of label. You've got to kind of look at your own circumstances and stuff. Um, so talking to a lot of people about diets and stuff like that, they they go, oh, I want to look like him. I want to look like her. It's just like, well, your your life, your job will not allow you to look like that person. That person trains seven hours a day. They haven't touched a carbohydrate in nine years. Their their whole existence is just to look like that, so it looks they look good. Like you have a, you know, you have an office job, for example. You're sat down for nine hours a day. So instead of cutting everything out to look like them how about you get up every hour and you walk around the office make those small steps try and hit your ten thousand step count a day because if you do that every day you're going to see a difference um i think it goes a bit further than that though um brian i think what well, you touched upon it a little bit it's you aren't them you need to get your grasp no. of that you you need to be content with like you say yourself mm. And that obviously requires a lot of work because it's mental. It's like yeah. you want to, we'll use the women as an example, but I can use men as well. You want to look like a person on the front of a magazine. But where does that hysteria come from? That's, that's a learned behavior. Um, and, it's, it's, and it's telling people that it's like, well, you, you've learned it. You can unlearn, obviously we're looking at the opposite for one. You can unlearn that. Uh, yeah. And the same with, be it, um, somebody said to me, 
with the uh, video I put out yesterday about um, willpower, motivation. He said there's two different things. Like as, as far as I as as I'm concerned, from where I'm coming from, and obviously you probably be very similar from an athlete perspective. There's no such thing. There's no difference. And I yeah. looked at the different the the definitions in the dictionary. They overlap because um, willpower talks about a um, a, a restraint from an impulse, which I didn't go into detail with, which is an addiction or a obsession, which from a sporting context is a good thing because if you don't obsess about your sport, you won't be able to progress through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously uh, with it changing something, obviously with this case being with weight loss, well, that's an in, that's intrinsic. You want to change something, but it's related to an external factor most of the time, be it a, a passing comment by a friend or family, a magazine, uh, an advert on television, you name it, the internet, uh, the latest thing that you've seen, whereas it's deep-rooted as... We're all supposed to be black sheep. And I think this is maybe where most of the amputees that have got a level head on their shoulders, and obviously we all have our own ups and downs, but they're okay. And they're okay. once they get over the initial loss of losing one limb, two limbs, an arm, a leg, they're okay in their skin once they can get over that hurdle. If they've got something else as well, it makes it more difficult, but they're a, bit, a little bit more inclined to be I accept who I am and I've got a fresh start in life. And and mm. be it if you tell me I'm fat, I don't look good, bye bye. It's like whatever. Yeah. And you carry on. Oh, yeah, I, I fully agree. Um I've never when I first lost the leg, they turned around and said, Do you want a cover on your leg? One of those hideous foam things. And I said, I said, No. And they were like, oh, you're one of these people that wants to show it off. I went, no, not at all. That leg is now part of me. I don't want to pretend that it's a real leg, but I'm still not going to advertise that it's a metal leg. I'm just going to accept it for what it is. It is my new leg. Um, I was like, so I don't want to walk around with any extra weight because those foam things weigh a couple of kilos by themselves. They're not light. Um, So I was like, I don't really want to do that but I don't really want an overly fancy metal thing that is going to draw attention to it. Just let it, it will be there. People will stare at it to start off with, but eventually it will just blend in. Um, And it has, you know, originally I'd walk through town, especially when I moved into the new village that I live in, my wife. I don't think they'd ever seen an amputee in their lives. Um, Everyone was like, there's a dude with one leg. And now it's just like, oh, there's Brian. So, you know, I don't mind asking questions and it, it, when people ask questions or they kind of kids stare and all that sort of thing. But when I, when it first happened, it was everybody was doing it. Now no one bats an eyelid. And I think once you get to that stage of acceptance, once I accepted the leg, the world accepted the leg, whether it was just, I started to ignore people that were looking or commenting on it. And um, I don't know but it just seemed to me that once I realized that this was my leg, this is nothing's going to change now that there was nothing I could do about it. There's nothing the world can do about it. Everyone just seemed to kind of get on with it. 
and a lot of amputees I've spoken to also find the same thing. And then if someone does continue commenting on it, they just don't have time for that person. It's, well, if you can't accept me for being the new me and the new way I look, then I can't accept you. So thank you for your time, um, but we're going to go our separate ways. And unfortunately, I've, I've experienced that firsthand. I, you know, I had some friends that were closer to being brothers than my actual brothers are, and they could not accept the fact I lost a leg. So we went our separate ways. Do you, th- do you think um, with this one, obviously it's opinion now, Brian, that sport and the obviously the contingent of service members that have lost limbs are very much in the same accord where their, method, their way of thinking is we're going to base you on your ability, obviously take the piss out of the disability because uh, that's, that's where I got thrust upon uh, when I first got into sport, and this is something I've never had to talk about, even on this on the show, is because I started able-wise sport and and kind of transferred over in my teenage years. The language that's kind of thrown a lot around is quite um, dark. I'd go further than that, but in terms <laughs> of when you're on the outside looking in, yeah, you kind of have this perception. Well. Can you really say this about another person's disability based on society, societal point of views? Where obviously once you're immersed into it, that obviously changed. So be it my question to you, Brian, do you think obviously on the one hand that that community obviously looks at it as you, you as solely as Brian, as kayaker or para skier? And then obviously going to take the piss out of you do something silly and obviously bringing the disability in it as well as to kind of normalize it. Whereas society would do probably the complete opposite. Um, yeah, I think if I can understand your question. Um, yeah. The, if I was to do something silly, like, you know, for example, when I was out in Poland racing out there, I, I crashed. So, and I, I crashed hard. I, I fractured four ribs. It was a good crash. Um, instantly, coaches and athletes, even athletes in, from different countries in their own language, were ripping me hard for crashing. The spectators were like, oh, no, I hope he's okay. And were instantly, someone was like, have you hurt your leg? And I was like, what leg? He was like, the leg you don't have. I was like, well, if it's not there, I can't hurt it, can I? <laughs> but yet... You've got the you've got the Polish guy, the Polish coach, saying, "Get up, you fat-legged one man, English man," and I was there like, you know, that's the mentality. Everyone's just like, we on the inside, it's it's banter. That's all it is. No one means a bad word about it. Um, it's just the sense of humour, and I think because a lot of para athletes, be it at an grassroots level or an international level a lot of them have come from the military from their different nations it's the same sort of banter it's it's quite vulgar if you're coming from the outside world so we've had the odd civvy we're all civvies now none of us are serving but we've had someone the odd person who's never served a day in their life come on training camps with us and 
have been horrified at the, some of the stuff that's been said. You know, I've, I've seen people who have, you know, I've, I've witnessed someone have their guide dog stolen and they're completely blind. Uh, I've seen people who, you know, another completely blind athlete had their Manchester United top replaced with a Manchester City and they had no idea. You know, horrible things like that. I've had, I've had my prosthetic legs stolen by another athlete just so I couldn't leave the room. Um, you know, all that sort of thing we find funny within reason. Some, you know, you've got to make, there's a definitely a, a fine line between a joke and kind of basically being a twat. Um, and as long as both people involved find it funny, then it's fine. But people have come on camps who are putting complaints to directors of programs about behavior because they've never seen it before. Um, and they've never been on the receiving end of it before. And then they felt left out because they don't feel comfortable doing it. And everyone tries to, when, when we realize there's that void, they don't, they don't, everyone kind of puts a, winds it down a bit but you can't help it it's just the way people are and i think it also helps make bridges both between teammates and people you compete against because everyone's having a joke and a laugh and no one's self-conscious about how they look um or you know the way they act because of their disability it, it i think it's a good thing within reason um but society sees things differently. They're starting to come around a bit. Like I've now got, you know, new coaches for different things that have never worked with power athletes before. And it's quite funny. The first time they make a leg joke to an amputee, you kind of see them stood there going, am I about to get told off for this? And then they realize that everyone's just laughing and they're like, okay, I'm safe. I haven't lost my job. Um, and, you know, people are starting to kind of accept the fact that, it's not bad to make a joke about an amputee as long as the amputee finds it funny, um, which is great to help break down barriers between different aspects of society. Because at the end of the day, who doesn't like a good joke as long as it's good? Um, so I think the world is coming around. Um, but yeah, it, the behavior and the language is very much military orientated in para sport, I think. The, and, also the kind of the mentality, not just from the banter side of it, but the way a lot of coaching sessions are run, the way a lot of uh, athletes approach it because they just carry over what they've learned their whole life into another environment where they are used to training. They're used, they've got targets. They've got to hit those targets. It's the mentality of everything just carries over, um, which is sometimes mostly a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. What, what what would be the bad thing? Um, there's a time and a place for it. So if you're in a, for example, I've seen it from an athlete's point of view. I've seen an athlete do it. I've seen a coach do it. I've seen a military coach take over a purely civilian team and then try and run it like it's a military operation. And it's not worked you've got to have, co you know, you spend a lot of time with these athletes and coaches. You've got to be on the same hymn sheet. You've got to create a program that works for the coach and works for the athlete. 
So I've seen af- uh, coaches coming who are very much like going to, par- you know, first parade before we go out and do our training at this time. Then we're going to do this. Then we're going to do this. No, you know, if you've never had that mentality drilled into you, you're not going to do that. And then I've seen athletes come in who are military, who have gone into a full civilian coaching and team who can't handle the lack of structure. I, I find it hard sometimes. Like we, we get told to be at training at six on the water at the latest half six. Um, if you're late, there's punishment, there's not punishment, but there's penalties. So I'm there at six. Well, I'm normally there before six. So I can get a cup of coffee in. Um, I'm on the water. I'm warmed up. I'm ready to go at six, uh, 6.30. And then you've got others who rock up at 6.30, get on the water just in time and then expect to warm up. Well, that's eating into my time. That's my, you know, so I find, and it took a little while for my coach to be like, we can't have that mentality here because these guys don't work. Like We say 6.30, but we kind of give a te- five, 10 minute window of, well, I've never had that five, 10 minutes. If you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. Um, so it's it, it, in reason it works it can make you quite uptight and it can cause divides but that's when you kind of need to kind of everyone needs to come together and talk about it and figure it out and then i've kind of re- relaxed over the years whereas my teammates and coaches have become a bit more stricter and we've kind of met at, in the middle somewhere so we are still there at six but now everyone gets there at 25 minutes past six so everyone's warmed up at warming up on the water at 6 30 not ready to go at 6 30 that way for example those that have those of us that have to work we're not eating into our training because we're waiting for people to turn up and warm up at least we know everyone's there and if you're not warmed up we'll start training without you and you can just catch up once you are warmed up um so yeah there's a, there is definitely a bit of give and take and a time and a place for it you think that change in mentality has helped nicely, obviously, um, into the transition of the res- resumption of training that you're now having to do now with with limitation until social distancing measures lockdown. Um, yeah, I found it. I found not having to be around people, not having kind of. I I know my timetable, so I stick to my timetable. Um, but I found it quite easy not having to be around people to train. So I'm used to not, you know, I, I spent being confined into my house. So, well, that's fine. Not red, never, you know, we used to call it hurry up and wait. So you'd get told to be somewhere. You'd all turn up and then you wouldn't do anything. You're there. This is just a massive game of hurry up and wait. Uh, you know that eventually you're going to get told to do something. You just don't know when, so you might as well fill the time in between. Um, so training by myself is made easier finding ways of staying mentally focused is easier it's i've spoken to a few guys i served with a few guys that like both my brother-in-laws are still serving and they've all referred to it as just one massive game of hurry up and wait which it kind of is But in terms of obviously that transition that you talked about before we come off air, uh, come on air, should I say, not off air, um, of 
of you've got like a plethora of different levels of senior athletes, not not mm. amateur ones or recreational um, people that see it as kayaking as a hobby, having to probably adapt and and make remaster the way that they're training to to kind of yeah um, reconvene to to the to the difficulties that obviously that it brings because ultimately like you said the chap who's a, a medalist yes you know what you're doing with your training but nobody in their right mind has ever faced these different no. li- limiting factors to be able to curtail some aspects of training yeah there's definitely two camps at the moment those that are handling training in the current environment and those that are not problem with the elite level of kayaking it's a centralized program so everyone's those of those that are on the medal hunt and are fully funded they live at the training center so they're used to having everything there the support network of their athletes their coaches now they're dotted around the country training in gardens and spare bedrooms they're still training but they're they are finding it hard because they don't have the encouragement and the motivation that they get from their their co-workers whereas a lot of the able-bodied guys it's not a it's meant to be a centralized program but a lot of them don't train centrally they they're used to training independently so they found it a lot easier to adapt to the whole i train when i want well when i can how I can and they've just instead of going to their local gym they've just moved their local gym to their house um and then now they're moving back into a restricted open training where they can get on the water with their teammates but still at independent clubs not at centralized locations that yes they're finding it hard because they can't do their own thing that is on their their training program they've got to work around others there's a lot of restrictions um and at the start of the week a few of us were finding the restrictions quite challenging but then it's it's just another hurdle that you have to overcome you have to be pliable to succeed in what we attempt to succeed in you can't be always be 100 percent rigid so they have now adapted and realized that if they're going to train at the allocated training time, then they're not going to be able to go off at a thousand miles an hour down the river because you're not allowed to overtake anyone. Um, You're not allowed to do portage practicing for the marathon athletes because you're not allowed on the uh, tow bath. So it's, it's give and take. They want to get on the water. They're going to have to take away some of the stuff they do and follow the rules otherwise none of us are going to be allowed on the water and we're all going to go back to training in our spare bedrooms um so it's that it's definitely a 50 50 split on who's handling it a lot of those that are still training independently who have come from a centralized program aren't back on the water yet because they're either train at locations that are still shut or they live nowhere near water so one or two, I think two of them are in the Highlands of Scotland where there's not a single bit of flat water for them to train on anywhere nearby. So they're, they're training to the best of their abilities. 
whereas we're very fortunate in the south that we've had our lockdown partially lifted which allows us to scuttle off back to our bodies of water as long as we follow the rules and keep behaving ourselves otherwise we run the risk of getting it all taken away from us again do you think from that basis then that and, and this is something we discussed discussed last month in terms of you know the training aspect of the for the elite guys or semi-elite of having that kind of um what did you call it um i can't think of the word um pliability of now the Olympics being and the Paralympics being next year, do you think that pressure has been a little bit of a uh, kind of weight lifted off your shoulders in terms of, okay, I don't need to peak for what would be August or September this year. Mm. I now have a year of flexibility to either rediscover some form if you were really, really yeah. struggling. Uh, obviously, to get to a better place physically, mentally and nutritionally for next year or obviously for the ones that were near near peak, obviously it gives them another chance to kind of go, well, you've got a level, you can kind of use this, the, the kind of the jargon speak of guru ones, level mm. up and kind of be even better than they were. Um, yeah, I think I think it has. It's a lot of it comes down to funding as well. Um, the a lot of guys have had their funding secured for another year, um, and those ones are simply trying to get to guru status, as you just said. They're, the guys, those guys are they're guaranteed to win medals. Let's be honest. Um, so their biggest challenge is staying injury free and making sure they now peak next year at the right time but without the international program building up to it so mentally it's going to be a challenge because they know they're fast but without having those little stops in between that proves that they're fast it's they're going to go into tokyo without facing the people that they're going to meet beforehand um so the psychological side of it is taken away that advantage of beating them four times in a year before you get to the Olympics is gone. So it's anyone's game now. Um, Cause you can beat anyone on any given day if they, if they muck up, but if you beat them every race going into it, you might as well have already won. Um, but going to the other side, it's added pressure onto a lot of guys because a lot of the junior spots on the team and the para spots on the team haven't been secured yet so it's they're up for those that want to do a mad push and try and steal a spot at the last minute it's still up for grabs one or two of the spots for the likes of emma and charlotte who have won medals at every event since they've ever touched the water they're secure they're not going to anybody else but there is still one or two spots available that the athletes do they have another year of full-time training in them? They were planning on retiring after Tokyo this year. Can their bodies handle another year of hardcore training? One or two of them have used it as an excuse just to retire now um, and gone, well, I missed the games, oh well. And they've jumped ship, which is 
opened it up. So it's it's fifty fifty. Um, some guys are using it. Yeah, fine, not a problem. Um, it's just keeping them healthy. The others are really struggling because now there's they're from another year of battling to keep your spot. If you don't have a spot, you lose your funding. If you lose your funding, you lose your income. Um, and then you've got the likes of me that's just like, well, I'm going to keep training. If I steal your spot, I steal your spot. If I don't steal your spot, I haven't lost anything. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what happens. I was, I, I was speaking to one of the guys from Cyprus the other day. And he's loving having this extra year to get. He knows he's not going to medal. He, he He's fast enough to make the games and the world championships and stuff, but he's not fast enough to make the finals. And he knows that and he's happy with it. But, but he's now using that this as an opportunity to try. He's, he's got an extra year to find that extra gear to try and make the finals. Um, and now he's got an extra, they've got an extra year to train a K2 partner for him as well. So it means he gets to race in two races. He's loving it. Whereas if it happened this year, he'd be racing on his own and he'd be the only Cypriot kayaker. Well, now there's two Cypriot kayakers going out. So it's great for him. He's, he's having a field day. So what, what do you think on that, Brian, in terms of the conversation that we had a month ago and where you are now? And where we will be at in twelve months' time, I know this is it's a bit it's a bit of a hard question to answer where the future where the future will take you, but what strides do you think you've made in the last month um in the last month, I've been focusing quite heavily on cardiovascular and just trying to trim a few a bit of the timber so my my strides haven't been water based but I know that they will affect the results on the water. Um, so I've just been trying to make sure that I can hold a peak heart rate for longer and that I'm not carrying any extra weight. So therefore I can go faster. If I can go faster and I can hold my maximum heart rate for longer, I can explode faster, um, which will help with both kayaking and skiing. Uh, do I think that, in 12 months time, I'll be lining up in a GB Jersey on a, in Tokyo. No, um, the guys in my bracket are faster than me and they're not close. I'm not close enough to them to make that dip, that gap up in 12 months under the current circumstances. If I quit everything trained every single day when I didn't have to worry about going to work and I didn't have to worry about everything else, then a possibility, you know, that I could pick up a reserve spot or I could even grasp a spot. Um, but as it currently stands, we have some very, very talented races in my classification and I'm just not the fastest in the country. So I've never, I've not beaten those guys. Um, they've not lost an international for a while. So I would have to really, well, I'd have to really improve or they would have to dramatically decrease in the next 12 months for me to line up. Um, but accepting that has taken a lot of pressure off me to, one, I'm still training, I still love it, but I'm not putting a lot of pressure on myself to 
lift heavy weights and do the long distances and risk getting injured i can do this i can take the slower smarter route now um and because this year's domestic season's gone i'm not race. no one's racing this year so i i all i've got to go by for how in my improvements isn't race results it's time trial results down the club so because that's not public knowledge no one's there watching me race i don't have to put the pressure on myself to make drastic sudden improvements i can shave a little bit off every couple of weeks and come into next season lighter faster and stronger without having to risk the injuries because you know you only got one body it's already broken enough i don't want to now completely destroy it chasing a spot that I know I'm not going to get. Whereas, and then put my skiing at risk because I've damaged my rotisserie cuff or something, trying to do a stupid deadlift. Um, so yeah, it's, it's taken the pressure off me. I can now take the smarter route than the drastic kind of Spartan route that I was thinking I was going to have to try and take to try and make some ground up. But do you think from a, to give some context to the listeners, that you're living in a a world that obviously having a full time job and doing sport, you live in a bubble that was pre UK sport and lottery funding versus obviously the guys are training full time and that's their job. So you're kind of will you're kind of two ends of the spectrum in terms of its obviously realistically and ideally you'd like to be on an equal footing to them, but that's not possible. But in terms of it's kind of um, an uneven playing field uh, from the aspect of you're doing something that obviously the, the athletes have gone by an ear and obviously had no other choice because it ultimately they needed to put food on the table and keep a roof over the head and then mm-hmm. do something that was ultimately a choice to, to compete at the international stage but versus what is now a modern days, I would call it a luxury for some athletes because they probably take it for granted and they forget about what came before. But in terms of where you see it, do you think as long as you can get as close as them as possible, you've probably done the harder yards because ultimately you're having to do something yeah. that more difficult. Um, I, I I take a lot away every time I catch up with or I beat an athlete who's funded because they when I first started like I used to be like oh no no you know I, I used to kind of resent them because you know they've they've got given it they're you know yeah they're not living an easy life they can lo- they're on a rolling month contract that if they lose s- speed they lose their funding as quickly as that um, but I used to be like, well, I'm going away. I'm working 14 hours a day. I'm trying to get training sessions in this, that, and the other. And it used to eat up at me. And then I started to realize, well, no, if I if I can do what they can do on having to, yeah, it's harder. It's a lot harder. I would love to be funded, but I'm if I can achieve what they're achieving off my own back, it means more. Um, it's now it's down to my hard work and determination and the hard work of the team that's around me 
to get me there. You know, it's we've made that. It's not lottery funded. It's not S- Sports England. It's not any of those guys. They can't take credit for anything that I achieve. Um, it's down to our hard work, our teamwork, our dedication. Um, I do. Yeah, I'd love to be fine. I'd love to be given an athlete's living allowance and then top it up with a bit of part time work in the off season. If it happens, great. Um, if it doesn't happen, I'm still going to be a contender, but be a contender off my own back. And I'm very fortunate to be sponsored by the people I work for. Um, you know, they're, they're fully understanding of the dedication and time. They'd love me to put in as much time as I do in training into work. Um, but they just know that's not kind of how I, I'm mentally wired. I, I, I do the work, but I'd rather be at training. Um, and you know, I'm very fortunate in that sense. I know a lot of people that their work doesn't care about sport. Um, so eventually once something's got to give, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have that balance. Um, and they take a lot of pride out of what I achieve as well. Um, so for, to come away from Poland with, with medals at the start of the year was, was amazing because I was competing against fully funded, much higher ranked athletes in the world than me. Um, and I've I, little old me rocked up unranked bet. You know, I'd only just been classified and it was my first proper international. I braced international development races, but this was a, you know, against, against guys who are doing the world circuit and I walked away with a medal. Um, that was, that, that was great because all these guys are basically shoe-ins for Beijing. Um, it, it was it meant a lot. It meant more to do it off my own back than to be spoon fed everything. I think my final question to you, Brian, before we wrap up the episode is then if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about, obviously it's a quite mm-hmm. a long episode, but into for one, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Be the best you instead of being the worst someone else as long as you are happy with yourself then be happy so on that note brian thanks again for coming on the mindset athlete podcast no thank you for having me pleasure being all mine if you like this episode please do share it with your friends and do let brian and i know the thought of the episode by tagging us over on instagram at Lever Brian, that's L E A V E R Brian with a Y, and at James O Roberts 11. And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And in addition, if you had any additional questions, don't hesitate to shoot them over as well. As always, don't forget to check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk and click on the tab resources. But not forgetting, I've also started a new Facebook group, especially for the podcast, which you can find by typing in The Mindset Athlete. And last but not least, and one especially for the amputees listening to this show, I've recently created a Facebook group called The Amputee Coach, fitness and nutrition for amputees to help you lose 10 plus pounds. So make sure to check those links out. They will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipson.com under the category general. So once again, thanks for listening. 
and I'll catch you next week for another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast.